Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, which will be our primary residence this morning. We're going to be talking about being possessed by Christ. If you're able, please stand with me as I read God's Word. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 9. This is God's Word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And Lord God, thank you for your word. We come to you today, Lord, sometimes struggling with our identity and an assurance regarding our security in Christ. Others, Lord, are confused as to whether they truly belong to you or not. And Lord, we pray that you would Strengthen your people today by your spirit and through your word. And those that do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself in mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So here we have gathered today and we are aware of of the fact that we go through a lot of troubles in life. A lot of things come at us and we, we see issues that face us and, and we kind of wonder what's going on sometimes. In fact, sometimes it's easy to see certain issues as the biggest thing facing us. And often we look at things outside of us and, and think, well, that's the biggest thing. But when actually what's going on on the inside, that's the biggest thing that's facing us. What I mean is this, I think there's, there's some dire and prevalent issues that face Christians today. But they're not found listed in life-threatening external events such as the threat of terrorism, let's say. We just passed another anniversary of 9-11. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're fearing sometimes for your own safety when you are living in a certain location... Other times you wonder if someone will just break out in a mindless act of violence against you or your family. But there are a lot of things going on in the world. Worldwide upheaval, political, economic upheaval, fears of persecution and other hostilities. There are the social maladies that Christians would say, wow, that's not biblical, that's not right. We love people, but we don't like that because that is against what God says. So the A-list of social maladies amongst most Christians would include abortion and homosexual agendas and euthanasia and a host of other soul-tormenting things. Some of you have numerous health concerns. Some of you I know are going through some really, really deep health concerns and you are wondering how it's going to work out or you have a decision to make and that takes up a lot of your time. That takes up a lot of your energy. That takes up a lot of, 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 of your, your thought process. 
And all these things are things that, that we can't ignore in life. But I think one of, the most, one of the most dangerous things to our souls as Christians is, is really under the, the heading of the, 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 the trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're battling every day whether we are going to live in fear or doubt or fleshly lusts. And I think sometimes it shows itself most readily in an ignorance of our identity in Christ and a lack of assurance of our security in Christ. I think sometimes we get attacked at our weakest point and it eats away at the foundation of our faith or so it seems because sometimes we are our own worst enemies. We will entertain all sorts of ideas. We will let a lot of different ideas come in and instead of kicking them out, we will coddle them. We will work with them. We will kind of try to, to figure them out and in fact get more entrenched in them than free from them. I think our greatest need today, especially in regards to this passage, is, is really to be informed as to our identity in Christ and assured regarding our security in Christ. And really before you jump to conclusion that, well, that isn't relevant, let me remind you who Peter was writing to. Peter was writing to a group of Christians that was going through deep persecution and would go through deeper persecution under Nero, who did atrocious things to Christians. And so these were not people sitting on padded chairs in an air-conditioned room in relative ease. These were people that were fearing for their lives, that would even need to fear for their lives even more. And instead of giving them, you know, instructions on how you can get through that persecution, first and foremost, I mean, he'll get to that. But first and foremost, he says, you should celebrate your salvation in Christ. You should know who you are in Christ. You should respond to that salvation in ways that are markedly different than people who don't believe. You should fix your hope on Jesus. You should be holy as God is holy. You should fear displeasing your heavenly Father. You should love your brothers and sisters in Christ because you need each other. You can't do this alone. You can't go solo act. You must be with your people. I think it's never more evident than in 1 Peter where Peter is informing and, and reassuring suffering Christians and he's giving them soul-satisfying truth that's rooted in our sovereign Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, it's really easy to say that the world is made up of two kinds of people. Believers and unbelievers. Those saved by grace through faith in Christ, those rejecting the message of the gospel. And that's true. When, when you boil it down, there's two kinds of people. Either you, you love the Lord Jesus, and as Peter put it, and we saw it last week, you are coming to Jesus as the living stone who is, and you are like a living stone with other living stones, other believers being built up into a spiritual house to be a, a holy priesthood, access to God, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Praise and worship and, and our lives and service. Or you're someone who is stumbling over Jesus you're rejecting Jesus you're saying no I don't believe that I don't want him I can do this on my own so there really is only two kinds of people 
in the world. What I want to say is this. Let's say you're in the camp where you say, I'm a Christian. You're, you're, you're in that camp. You say, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I'm placing my faith and my hope completely on Jesus. I'm not counting any of my own good works. I'm not counting any of my own righteousness because I know I don't have any. And anything good I do is because of a gracious gift of God and because he has given me the ability to do that and I offer myself in service to him because of gratefulness for what he has done for me. And you're in that camp. But have you ever wondered, or do you ever wonder if you really, really belong to Jesus? Have you ever doubted your standing in Christ? Have you ever said, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm a second or third or even fourth tier Christian because of sins that I've committed in the past that I could never be like a super Christian. And you've made these artificial delineations in your mind and thought, well, you know what? I'm way down here and maybe, maybe God will accept me into heaven because I've just sinned way too much. There's a lot of pride mixed up in that, and, and you might not even realize it. You might think, well, I'm being so humble. But it's, it's really pride. It's, it's you saying, I can be my own savior. You're not really trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in yourself and how good or how bad you are. Do you ever feel like you're losing your faith? I have talked to too many people who are in the camp of Christian and feel like they're losing their faith. They feel like it's just slipping through their fingers as, as, as if it could. Today will be a very important time for you and us together to be reminded and reassured of our standing in Christ as we grasp together with God's people the settled truth of the gospel and that we could bask in the glory of our all-sufficient, preeminent, Sovereign Savior Jesus. We've got a main point today. It comes out of this passage. And the idea is this. That if you are possessed by Jesus, if you are possessed by Jesus, then you are able to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus because you're powered by His mercy. So if you are possessed by Christ... God wants you to proclaim His excellencies powered by His mercy. Not in your own strength, but by His mercy. Think about what God does with, with a person who comes to faith in Christ. God reveals Himself in the gospel. He initiates a, a soul-fixing transformation that takes place that leads to a glorious fixation on Jesus Christ. The idea is that if you get fixed on objective truth, that fixes pretty much everything. But a lot of people aren't fixed on objective truth. They, they would rather work with their own thoughts. I heard something yesterday that I have never heard before. And, and I'm reminded, even as I've been planning this week to preach this message about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And if you're possessed by Christ, you proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I, I heard something yesterday that I'd never heard of this particular 
category of person ever say or or and i saw something that i never had seen before i went to a wedding last night in this very room russell hammond got married and and he stood up at his reception and said something i've never heard a groom at a reception say before now his best man stood up and, and basically gave a really good speech and, and said, look, this guy here I've known since he was a kid and I've, I, I've known when he wasn't following Christ. But he has been transformed by the gospel and he is a different man today. And that was awesome. And then Russell stands up and he takes the microphone and I love it because no one could shout him down. It was his wedding. He could say whatever he wants. And he says, I have three things to say to you. My wife and I have three... Three things to say to you, basically. He was, he was really saying this on behalf of Carolyn as well. And he says, here's the deal. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to paraphrase. We love the Lord Jesus, and we are totally sold out to him, and we're scientists. And this is a very rational faith that we have. And, and if you're not a believer, you need to think deeply about the, the claims of the gospel. And you have a decision to make, basically. I loved it. I think everyone who gets married who's a believer should do that because there's really two times in your life that you have an awesome opportunity to preach the gospel one is at your wedding and other is at your funeral and you won't be speaking at that one okay and so why not preach the gospel when andrew and aaron got married in on june 22nd of this year they said to me preach the gospel strong well i had their permission so i did it was awesome the gospel is awesome the gospel transforms people and so really what i'm what i'm gonna what i'm gonna say to you today is, is really what what god is saying to us through first peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 which is if you're possessed by christ god transforms your life in such a way that all you can do you're compelled to to proclaim the excellencies of christ and you do it because you've received mercy you don't hate anybody you you love everybody and you're like i love people so much i want them to hear about the life-changing life-transforming gospel of the grace of god in christ and what peter does again he's writing to persecuted christians and he's writing to inform them and assure them of their identity and their security in christ about how they're possessed by him. So he starts off with their identity. He starts off with his, uh, their identity in verse 9. He says, but you, but you are. You are something in contrast to what someone else isn't. He has just said in the verses prior, he has said that those who disbelieve, that the stone that is the living stone, Jesus, is now being rejected by them they are stumbling over the stone he says those who disbelieve this jesus is now a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense he's quoting from isaiah 8 14 and he says they stumble because they disobey the word they were destined to do it and then verse 9 but you and he's launching into this this extreme assurance this reassurance of these believers this is what they needed to latch onto. he says but you are 
a chosen race. Chosen. He uses the same word that he used in chapter 1, verse 1. The elect. He's saying that by God's sovereign choice, you have, you have come to faith in Christ. He says you believe in him and you don't even know, you don't even know what he looks like. You can't see him. And you love him though you can't see him. Believe in him. And it's because of God's sovereign choice of you. Now look, when you go share Christ with someone, you basically tell them, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He's coming back. You need forgiveness in Christ. You can't pay for your own sins. You don't, you don't tell them usually. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying usually you don't say, by the way, what I'm going to say next, if you're not elect, you're going to reject. And you, I don't think I've ever said that to anyone as I'm sharing the gospel with them. Or if they reject it, I would say, well, forget you because you're not elect. No, if someone's living and breathing with all my heart, I'm going to preach the gospel to them and appeal to them to turn from their sins and turn to Jesus. But what the family of God finds out, and now Peter is telling them this, he's saying, you are this. What are you? You're a chosen race. You have been chosen by God. And, and what that does is it crushes your pride. You can't be your own savior. It crushes your pride because it's a totally solo choice decision of God. God did this. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not a result of works. It's a gift of God. You can't boast about it. And I think what it does is it crushes our pride, but it also encourages our holiness. Because we are so grateful. We are consumed with gratitude over what God has done for us. And so we have this enthusiasm to obey God no matter what. And, and you know what God's election of believers is to believers? First and foremost, it's, it's eternal and unchangeable. It's from eternity past. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And it gives you a lot of assurance and encouragement and, and real peace no matter what the circumstance you're going through. To know that you are chosen by God. You're safe and secure in Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus himself is our peace. He made both groups into one. That would be Jew and Gentile alike. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And the idea is that it's a privilege to be chosen by God. Privilege. He says you are the chosen Race, And then he says, not just chosen race, but a royal priesthood. Which is a crazy combo, really, if you think about it. King and priest at the same time. A pretty amazing combination, if you will. A royal priesthood. Peter didn't come up with this idea. God did. Exodus 19, verse 6. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Revelation 5, the song to Jesus, says, worthy are you. Because you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Who could come up with such a royal house? Only Jesus, our king and our priest. The one who went to God on our behalf. The one who rules. Why we call him Lord? Because he's in charge. He rules. He's the king. A royal priesthood. And not only a royal priesthood, but a holy nation. Separate. Set apart being sanctified by God's Spirit. We've looked at this before, but sanctification has two parts. One is the settled, fixed 
position you have before God of being holy in God's sight and the other is this progressive work that God's Spirit is doing with your cooperation to live a holy life. It's an expected progressive pattern of holy living. This is why God could have Peter remind them in chapter 1 that they are holy. They're elect. They're, they're, they're chosen. They're holy. And in verse 16, tell them they need to be holy. You're holy positionally in Christ. And now in your life, you need to live a holy life. You need to choose and, and choose the right way every moment of every day. We all know we don't. And that's why we come into a room like this and we see a table such as this. And if you didn't see it before, now I'm pointing it out. There's a wooden table up here with two silver containery things and three hidden items under doily napkin things. And nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to set up a communion table like that, but we do, and it's wonderful, right? But underneath those lids and the doily things, bread and juice. And the reason why is because Jesus gave this for his family to celebrate his broken body and his shed blood on the cross in their place, where he took the wrath of God so that we could receive mercy. But when you come into a room like this and you see this table, a lot of Christians instantly say, oops, I better confess a bunch of sins. We don't think about it when the table's not there, but when they see the table, oh, we've got to do that. Kind of sad for us, but it's true. And what happens is we, we, we know when we see this table how much we need Jesus. We know when we sin. I'm going to say something at the end of the service. I'll say it now. That when we pass out the bread, if you're not a believer don't take it if you are a believer take it the only person that will be excluded from this table from partaking of the bread and the cup are those who exclude themselves who say i don't believe in jesus but you believe in jesus you take the bread and the cup but there's something i ask you to do if you've sinned a lot this week i'm not going to ask you to raise your hand i'm not going to ask you to make a list but i'll just say if you've sinned this week a lot take a piece of bread so many Christians will say, no, 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 I've sinned too much this week, so I'm, I'm excluded from the table. Well, if you come to the table by your own righteousness, if you come by the table, to the table by your own good works, sure, that would be a, a twisted thing to do. And I guess the right thing to do if you were living in that twisted system. But the system we're living under is God's grace in Christ, which covers our sins and which leads us to not want to sin, but trust the Holy Spirit to make wise choices that would be pleasing to God. But if you sinned a lot this week, you take a piece of bread and do what Christians do. Confess your sins and receive the forgiveness that God has given you in Christ. The identity is chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. But not just that, possessed. A people for God's own possession. Now we sometimes misunderstand what it means to be possessed. Let's talk about the things we possess. I've seen this happen before with my own children when they were younger, especially. They'll say, mine! You know, they're playing with toys. Mine! Like, you didn't buy that. You didn't make that. That was a gift. It's mine, and he took it or she took it, right? When you have five kids, there's a lot of opportunity for these type of conversations and dialogues to go on. 
debates would even. Arguments is probably a better way to put it. Fighting over possession. If we're playing football, you fumble the ball and I grab it, mine. Now, you can grab it from me and now it's yours. But I didn't make the football. I didn't buy the football. It's just the figure of speech. But we misunderstand what it means to be possessed. I'm walking along the street and I find a diamond ring. Four carats. And I slip it in my pocket. Now it's mine, right? Someone lost it. Just this morning, I saw someone with a donut. I said, can I have that donut? They look at me like, no, it's mine. Well, they didn't make the donut. They didn't even buy the donut. They, like five minutes earlier, they had picked it up out of a box. Now it's theirs. They will fight to the death for the donut. They would not give it up. Actually, after the first service, they, they came and gave me their donut. Does anyone want this, by the way? It's a portion of a donut. Come on. You want it? Come on, come on up. Really, I'm serious. Okay, Dominic, let's be waiting for you after the service, okay? But here's the deal. I said, hey, can I have that donut? They're like, no, you can't. And I was just testing them. I wasn't going to eat it. I was going to give it right back. Mine. We are so possessive, are we not? We misunderstand possession. Our possession might not be valid. It might not be verifiable. It might not even be bona fide. Uh, But God's possession is so different than our possession. Now, there are times when we have a title deed to something. You own your car, maybe you and the bank own your house, things like that. But basically, we don't own a lot where we actually made it, secured it, and hold on to it. Okay, Usually we get something from someone else. God's possession is different because his possession is as creator. It's creator-based and it's savior-based. He makes all people. He's given all people life. So he owns you outright because of that as just one of his creations. But then those he saves, he owns because he's their savior. So the idea is of his possession is way, way deeper than our idea of possession. Interestingly, you look at this idea of a people for his own possession. What you find is that, and Ephesians talks about this, Ephesians 1, it says, In him, in Christ, after you listened to the message of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, you, were, you believed in him and you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it says that he was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view, get this, to the redemption of God's own possession, what he owns, to the praise of his glory. See, when this word possession is used here in 1 Peter 2, it means that it was purchased, not found, bought for a price, and not just any price. Believers belong to Jesus because God bought them at the highest price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 7.23 says, You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. The price was Jesus Christ, His shed blood. Titus 2 tells us that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. So here's the idea that is being put forth. 
God sovereignly chooses all who believe, and by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, he pays the price to redeem them. The Holy Spirit draws you to Jesus. You're given new life through conviction of sin and faith in Christ. That's how you say that believers belong to God as his possession. Anything else is is a shadow of the biblical teaching. Now I want you to see one more thing in this verse that, that really seals the deal. We talked about how you're, you're chosen and royal and holy and possessed, but there's, there's the words that we ignore. He says you're a chosen race. That's the Greek word genos, where we get the word genealogy or genus, a group of, a group of, 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 of people, a family of people. Then he says you're a holy nation. That's the word ethnos. You got genos and ethnos. Ethnos, ethnicity, a, a group of people, a whole group. And then he says, you are people for his own possession. Laos, we get the word laity or lay people from it. Genos, ethnos, laos. The Holy Spirit has just had Peter use every imaginable, essentially every word for people, which would effect, effectively erase any doubt as to who they belong to. God's people. God's race, nation, people. And we're not talking about only the Jews. We're talking Jew and Gentile alike who believe in the Lord Jesus. He used every possible name for people, and the people group. We misunderstand the possession, and God's possession is as creator and savior. He has the legal right. He has a choice and privilege. His possession is totally valid and verifiable. I want to mention one thing on the side here. A lot of Christians will be confused about whether they can be possessed by the devil. People will say, oh no, I'm battling evil and I've even said yes to a lot of evil. And so, and the Bible says, don't let Satan have a foothold. But the idea is if you're possessed by Jesus Christ, you cannot be possessed by the devil at the same time. It can't happen because God will not allow any rivals to his ownership. When the light comes into your life, it says that he has, what does it say? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. The idea is that you have gone from the kingdom of, and domain of Satan into the kingdom and domain of God. You are now God's ownership. It means he is protecting you, which means he is keeping you. Jesus in John chapter 10 he says, I am the good shepherd and, and, and I know my own and they know me. I, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, the, my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. And the idea is he will not lose you. He will not throw you away. We throw stuff away, right? We got a wrapper or something. We throw it on the ground. We just throw something away because it maybe has a broken like the chair has a broken leg and we just toss it in the trash instead of fixing it. And what happens? We start thinking, well, God might do that with us too. A lot of Christians will say, well, you know, again, I've sinned too much. God's going to probably reject me. The hammer's coming down. I'm going to get kicked out of the body of Christ when nothing could be further from the truth if you truly believe in the Lord Jesus, if you truly know Christ. Now, if you say, if you say, I, I pray to prayer I raised my hand, I walked down an aisle on a certain day, and your life has never changed. You might be living with a false security, a false assurance. Because in evangelical Christianity, there has been this 
long time movement towards decisional regeneration where I made a decision therefore I pronounce myself a Christian that's not how the Bible portrays what it means to be a Christian in fact Peter says God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead now he does say you believe in him and you love him and you obey him so if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit you will believe in him and love him and obey him if there's no pattern of obedience, if there's no pattern of loving and, and, and believing, then you're probably living with a false assurance of salvation. That's simple, actually. Then you just believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, and turn to Christ. Come to Jesus. Well, the idea in First Peter where it says, coming to him as of a living stone, it's not that one time where I prayed a prayer that one day, now I'm on my own, I can do whatever I want, but... I am coming to Jesus continually as my life. I'm depending upon him all the time. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't keep me, I'm lost. The cool thing is, God says you are his possession. You have security. You have assurance. What if you were sitting in your house and you were all afraid that someone was going to steal all your stuff and, and, and come in and break in? That wouldn't be good, would it? Let's say you were living in a really bad, bad neighborhood with lots of crime and you kept all your windows and all your lights on and keep the windows open and the doors unlocked all the time and we're like, oh, whatever happens, happens. You're putting yourself in danger, right? But let's say you're sitting in a house that every window is locked, every door is locked, you have an alarm system. No, not, not a, just an alarm system two or three alarm systems one alarm system on top of another alarm system and you have all these keypads and and everything's bolted and deadlocked and and padlocked and you are like no one could get in here now if you were sitting in there cowering in the corner afraid that someone's going to come in wouldn't that just be crazy there's a lot of christians who are 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 safe and secure in Christ and because they're ignorant of what the Bible says they are cowering daily and not free to serve God and not free to proclaim the excellencies of Christ because they're so worried about their standing. Verse 10 says, once you weren't a people, now you are the people of God. Because once you, you hadn't received mercy under God's wrath, but now you have received mercy. He's giving them their testimony in brief. You, you, weren't God, you weren't a people, now you are a people. You're God's people. You didn't have mercy, now you do have mercy. Praise God. What gives you that assurance? It, it's believe what God says in His Word. Believe the facts from God's Word. Paul says in Romans that through in, endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we would have hope. So it's not enough to go a long time and go, ah, I don't know the Bible. I've been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, and I, someday I've got to really get to know the Word. That's a travesty. You need to know what the Bible says. If, if you're a Christian and you've never maybe read through the whole Bible, you need to start today. And, and, and don't stop until you're finished. You can eat, you can sleep, you can work, you can interact, but... In those moments that you're, you're focused on that, don't stop until you've done that. And when you finish, start again. God gives you encouragement and assurance and 
of your security in Christ through knowing what the Bible says. Put this, put this verse on a sticky note, on a post-it note. Put it up all over the place. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. And there's a reason so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You live in darkness, it means you're, 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 you're in the kingdom of Satan. If you're in, in, living in the light, it means you're in the kingdom of God. If things are dark, you turn on the light, everything changes, right? I get up in the middle of the night sometime to go to the bathroom or take, get a drink of water and I might turn on my, my little flashlight on my phone. It's no bigger than like my pinky finger fingernail that little tiny light and it just lights up the whole room. The light of the gospel opens everything up. Uh, he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You want to know what an assurance killer is? An assurance killer is entertaining doubts instead of kicking them out. An assurance killer is going solo instead of sticking with the body of Christ. An assurance killer is biblically being illiterate and not knowing what God's word says. And um, it's not good for you. Assurance of salvation should be the normal Christian life for every believer. The birthright and privilege of every true believer in Christ. Romans 8, 16 teaches us that salvation uh, assurance is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 2 Peter 1, 10 goes as far as to command us to pursue this assurance. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. As you do this, you will never fall. 1 John five thirteen. John is wrapping up 1 John and he reveals his purpose in writing. What does he say? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So here's the giver of every good and perfect gift who has given us, seen fit to give us even an entire book in the Bible that will teach us to know that we have eternal life. So read 1 John. God intends for you to have assurance that you are his child. Real assurance, not false assurance, real assurance. Jesus possesses Christians. I remember a story that I heard once. It was called Little Boat Twice Owned. You might have heard it before. It's about a little boy who builds a sailboat and he he crafts this sailboat meticulously, takes great care in shaping the hull and making the, the sails. And he takes the, the boat, the finished sailboat, down to the stream near his house and he puts it in the water and it sails perfectly, but it sails really fast downstream and he can't chase it down in time and it gets lost and it goes away and, and his little boat is gone. Down, way downstream, there's a, a, someone who finds the, the boat and says, wow, this is a really cool boat, but I don't need it. I think I'll sell it to a, a, a local merchant downtown. And so he goes in and sells it to the store, and, and the storekeeper puts the boat in the window with a price tag on it. And the little boy is walking down the street one day and sees his sailboat in the window. And he's like, 
that's my boat. And the shopkeeper's like, no, it's my boat. (laughs) And if you would like this boat, you can buy this boat. It's for sale. So the little boy empties out all his piggy banks and goes and buys the boat. So he gets reunited with his little boat that he made. And he's like hugging his boat. And he says, oh, little boat, you're twice owned. First I made you, now I bought you. And, And that's really... If you think about how it is with God's possession of Christians, he's got creator rights, he's got savior rights of ownership. And he he created you, but then because of sin, because of the fall, everyone's born under the wrath of God and under a sentence of death unless and until they come to faith in God's one answer to our sin problem, which is the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross, paying our penalty that we deserve. And so all who come to faith in Christ are then basically redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, bought by God, and and He he owns believers in a way that He doesn't own a non-believer. And it's all because God wants His excellency proclaimed. It's interesting, this word excellencies. If, if, If I use it about... It means that you have virtue and character. And it would be very arrogant for any one of us to walk around proclaiming our own excellencies. Okay? Proverbs says that. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Don't, don't, don't boast about yourself. So if you walked around and told everyone how excellent you were, how virtuous you were, people would get very annoyed at you and they wouldn't hang out with you, right? But when you use the term regarding God, what it means is that you are pointing out His mighty deeds what he has done. And here, uh, it's so that you're, you're owned by God so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and his finished work. That's what he has done. All the amazing gospel truths about what Jesus has done. All those gospel truths that transforms our lives, that transforms Russell's life and my life and all of you who know Jesus, that transforms you gospel truth so you proclaim the excellencies of christ but not with your words alone we misunderstand what it means to proclaim it we say well as long as i say it and tell people what they need to know i've done my job not if you do it with a scowl on your face not if you do it uh, with unresolved issues with someone Not if you slam someone with it and go, you're going to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. I told you. I just proclaimed. You didn't proclaim the excellencies. And you didn't do it the right way. Some people will also say, well, you know, I just have to live a a, a godly life in front of them. They'll figure it out. I don't know anyone who's that smart. Okay? Uh, They've got to see and hear. You've got to show and tell. And, and we've, it's got to uh, intersect where they see the life and they hear the words and they both go together. That your words don't pull the rug out from underneath your... Underneath your... Uh, your, your life doesn't pull, pull the, the, the rug out of underneath your words. That you, you basically are, are consistent. I mean, we misunderstand possession. We misunderstand proclamation. Showing and telling the gospel truth about what Jesus has done. And you know when you experience something when you're a kid and it's, you look back as, as, and when you grow up, you go, wow, 
it was so big when I was a kid and seems so small now. Whether it was a place you went, it was a restaurant or an event you went to or something, it always somehow seems smaller when you, when, when you get there as an adult. Because you were little back then. You were, you were shorter, you know? And, and you also had a more narrow view of life. It was, I went to this place and, bro, it was so big, but you weren't seeing all the other things around it. But you know when, when something truly gets big to you? I, I was walking the other day in Santiago Oaks with my two youngest kids, and we were coming up to the dam up there, and it was interesting. The closer we got to the dam, the more it loomed over us. Uh, at a distance, it was kind of just there, but as we got there, it was literally like almost moving, getting taller. But it's, it was the same size the whole time. Now, that has to do with a thing called parallax. Does anyone here know what parallax is? I just learned this week. 51 years old, I just learned about parallax this week. It's because we, we homeschool our kids, and, and my two youngest kids, one of my kids threw me a book and said, here, teach me. Mom, mom's always doing it. You, you do some now. And so um, you're on page, you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay. And so I opened it. I'm usually, like, I'm good on the Bible and on, you know, writing and things like this. But, but astronomy is not my wheelhouse, okay? So I'm like, okay, let's go. And so I started reading. And we're talking about parallax. Parallax is the apparent change in position of an object caused by the actual change in the position of the observer. So the closer you get to the object, the bigger it seems, right? Well, it's not getting bigger. You're getting closer. You can make the tie-in with your relationship with God. God seems bigger and bigger to you the more you grow in Christ because you're growing closer to God. You can know Him better in His Word. You're, you're praying. You're, you're, you're pouring your heart out to Him. You're, you're saying, God, I'm, 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 I'm doubting or I'm going through this, this struggle. Please give me wisdom. Please help me. Please, please show me. And so he gets bigger and bigger, and so you, you proclaim his excellencies more, more accurately, more vividly, because you're more, you're more in tune with that. And yes, my eighth grader did say, here, teach us. And, and it was, I learned, and they learned too. So she did it respectfully, though. Let's talk about mercy. Last thing I want to talk about is mercy. We talked about being possessed by Christ. We talked about proclaiming Christ's excellencies. But let's talk a moment about being powered by God's mercy. Because here he says, you had not received mercy, but now you have. When Jude was writing, he said, look, may, great, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We don't understand mercy, though. We don't understand mercy. We think that it is weakness. In the movie Gladiator, Maximus, was called Maximus the Merciful. And his mortal enemy, Commodus, thought it weakness on his part when he did not kill him when he had the chance. We misunderstand mercy. We think that mercy is caving in. We think that mercy is, oh, you don't really want to go to that, to that nth degree and, and really let the person have what they deserve. So you're merciful because you didn't want to follow through on what you said would be the consequence. The thing is, God, God is merciful because he followed through on the consequence and put it all on the Lord Jesus. Put it on God the Son. 
He took the punishment for our sin. He took what we deserved. And, and punishment now has been withheld from us because it all went on Jesus. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you can be fully engaged in your identity and your security and even have a ministry of mercy because of the mercy that you have received. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy with fear. You wait for the mercy that you've received, you will be merciful to other people. You will show mercy. Mercy should mark your life and your ministry. You say, well, I'm holding on to some things. Well, let them go. Maybe you're holding on to some, some hate towards someone, some unforgiveness, a grudge. It's interesting the kind of sins we allow in our lives that we'll even coddle in our lives and they'll come out at the most inopportune times and we don't even realize they're, they're sins anymore because they're so much a part of our life. I was just talking to someone the other day that in like a five minute span said three bad things about three different people. When I think about mercy, I think about Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Here's King David who is wanting to show kindness, wanting to show mercy towards someone, anyone from Saul's household. Saul was his mortal enemy. Saul tried to kill him numerous times. And David says, is there anyone that I can show mercy to? They found a grandson of Saul Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet, was crippled in his feet. In those days, he would have been an outcast, throwaway, reject, good for nothing in anyone's eyes. And David took him into his home and provided for him and showed, showed him mercy. When Mephibosheth uh, was brought to David, he thought he was going to get killed. He thought he was going to do away with him. We misunderstand mercy because we think it's weakness, but the greatest strength is mercy. I'm going to come to the table. And as we prepare to do that, let me just read you two things. Actually, I'm going to read you one thing from, from Romans chapter 9. Because it will also bring in an Old Testament passage in Hosea. It says that God has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That's who can come to the table today. Anybody who has received mercy from God because of the shed blood of Christ has placed their faith in Christ for salvation.